0: or generosity is really synonymous with the flowering of the practice. Um, It's convenient to separate certain qualities and certain aspects of practice and Theravadan Buddhism is very good at doing that, as you probably know. Lots of laundry lists of qualities to be developed. which means uh, generosity, is what is known as a parami, or those of you who have seen it more in Sanskrit, paramita, sometimes translated as a perfection, um, or a supreme quality, or a transcendent quality. Um, And in our practice, there are ten of these paramis that are qualities to be developed. We have all of them right now, each and every one of us in this room. And the practice is about uh, enlivening what are right now in seed form or undeveloped or in some of us highly developed. And the first of these qualities is what is known as generosity, sometimes called generosity or giving or liberality. Um, The paramis themselves if I could just be very brief, because we'll only be talking about this one, uh, are fields of developing a force of purity in the mind. The first one, a major one, is generosity. And the other two major areas have to do with uh, qualities having to do with personal integrity. As many of you know, sila. And... uh, also meditation, the final one has to do with meditation and especially the development of wisdom. Now all of them really are developed simultaneously because to truly develop generosity, you already need some wisdom right at the beginning because if you try to develop generosity without wisdom, it can actually backfire. Okay, I won't be going into a lot of the others because there isn't enough time. The paramis, uh, or these spiritual qualities um, are developed and strengthened and intensified. And in the process of doing that, uh, it brings us to the goal of the practice, which is the other shore. Sometimes you'll see paramita defined that way. That is this shore is the shore that most of us are running along frantically back and forth. We're running along this, the shore. Shoreline. And uh, that shore is characterized by greed, hatred, and delusion. And these qualities are sometimes likened to a raft, which help us go to the other side to transcend where we are now. Now, it's not really another place. What gets transcended is us. Our heart becomes changed, transformed radically. So we're in the same place. There isn't some place to get to. It's right here on Broadway, if you want it to be, or wherever. And these qualities, uh, according to the classical teaching, have been developed for lifetimes. And if someone is exposed to the practice of Dharma, has been brought to the possibility of freedom, seeing that, that already implies that these paramis have been developed so that all of us in this room have been working on these. And to some degree that has brought us to where we are. And so let's start with generosity. I mean, we'll finish with it too tonight. In a way, it's a simple thing to talk about. I mean, we all know it, probably in your upbringing, You were encouraged to be generous, to share with your brothers and sisters and cousins and so forth. And most of what I have to say, I assume you really will all know, perhaps you won't realize the implications of it. And in using a word like flowering, that metaphor is intentional because as generosity grows and develops, it's very beautiful. It adds a quality to our life. It adds a certain beauty to our life. And it's the joy of giving. It's the joy of freely giving. Now, the development of generosity, especially to the degree to which we're encouraged to develop it in this practice, at a certain point, becomes a head-on collision with the way in which we've been brought up. Again, I'm speaking in general. Because The development of generosity is a movement to turn around, to totally turn around the major obstacle in spiritual development, which is this clinging and grasping, craving, clinging, grasping to I and mine, or this cherishing of the self. We've been brought up mainly to accumulate and actually to be selfish, not necessarily using that term, Generosity is sort of sprinkled in there a bit, but it's always got to be watched and careful. Um, It's a head-on collision in the following way. In this teaching, as many of you know, the Four Noble Truths are the, the core, all Buddhist schools agree on that. So whether it's Tibetan or any of the Zen schools or any of the many approaches in Theravadan Buddhism, everyone agrees they're all united around the Buddha's teaching of the Four Noble Truths. The truth of suffering, the existence of a a degree of unsatisfactoriness, actually a high degree of unsatisfactoriness for all of us. Not meant as an ideology, it's not that you're expected to believe what I just said, but rather to be seen, to be investigated, to be seen in our very life from moment to moment. It's also suggested that the crucial reason we suffer so much is because of craving and attachment. That is, there is a deep yearning for things all the time, or a good deal of the time. And so we're endlessly in need of something, and we go about living our life that way. And so, in a sense, the model of happiness is one of hunger. This is the ordinary model of happiness, where we're hungry. And happiness comes when we get what we want. We feel that we don't have something. We're lacking in one way or another. But if we get it, then we'll be happy. And so much of what we do, the calculations and the courses of action that make up our life, have to do with attempts to get things that we think we don't have. And sometimes we get them and we feel happy, at least to some degree, for some time. And sometimes we don't and we're not. Now, the approach to happiness in Dharma is very, very different. It's not to deny uh, the joy of or the happiness of getting something if you want it. But it, goes, it approaches uh, happiness from a rather different point of view. The point of view is that the real happiness comes when we, the hunger itself starts to diminish. That is when we become less and less needy. So the model is not so much happiness is getting what we want, but happiness is not wanting so much in the first place. And the reason, according to this uh, teaching, that this is put forward is that it's suggested, and for each one of us to study firsthand, is that this pattern of endlessly trying to get what we think we don't have doesn't prove to be ultimately fulfilling. If it worked, if it truly worked, there would be no need for us to gather together here this evening. And so it gets to a root, it's an attempt to get to the root of happiness, which has to do with a fulfillment that has nothing to do with grasping. And that fulfillment, it is said in the teaching. And those of you who have done some practice, I hope you've at least tasted the beginnings of it. That fulfillment is already intrinsic. It's innate. We already have it. It's waiting. It's waiting to be manifested. And so it's a rather different approach. Now, since the normal way of doing things is to put tremendous premium on getting, whatever it is, many levels, material things, acclaim, confirmation, whatever, whatever qualities you value, the approach is on getting in answer to this craving, and then once we get it, perhaps we hold on, we try to get some more of it. So the basic thrust being getting is what's normal, that's our starting point. So that when you take a seemingly simple quality like generosity, you begin to talk about it. Uh, You can see that generosity is uh, setting in motion energies that go in the opposite direction. Because it's talking about a certain kind of happiness that comes from giving, from letting go, from giving up, not from holding on, not from grasping. And so, this practice, which starts very, very humbly, each one of us starts exactly where we are, and I'm talking about it as a practice, not just as a quality to reflect on, but as something that we can actually do. And I've already suggested some reasons why we might want to do it. To carry out and to make giving a parami, that is, there's a lot of giving in the world that is, is not, would not qualify for being a parami or a perfection. The reason being that the giving usually has ulterior motives. The giving may be inappropriate, the giving may be destructive. In short, the giving is really getting under a different name. Okay. To begin with, we all have motives which are just the normal motives. We actually do want things for what we give. If we give, we would like to get some credit for it. Or we'd like to get something in return, perhaps a favor later on. Or we'd like gratitude. Or it's, you know, in, in political terms, it becomes quite a commodity. And so all of us have tendencies of holding on. That is, we're, um, you might say the root here would be this possessiveness, the psychology of deep hunger expressed through possessiveness. And that's deep in all of us. And to turn that around, it's suggested to give something. Okay, that sounds simple enough. And then as we start to look more closely, we see that there are a fair number of issues involved. First of all, the most important one, is the mind of the giver, or the heart of the giver. The intention for it to qualify as a parami, that is for it to be a practice, to help us in our uh, Dharma practice, is for it to have to do with the the benefit of the recipient. That is, the giving has to be pure of heart. In a sense, it's giving without any attachment. No um, fine print. Just pure, simple giving. And the giving uh, has to be of something that's valuable. Right? I mean, if we're giving things that are worthless, that isn't going to change the quality of our heart. Our heart will be the same. And so, even in the ancient texts, giving is talked about as having grades, there's a giving that's kind of beggarly, where what we give is not something that we value. And even there, we may hesitate and ponder for long periods of time before we finally decide, yes, I'm going to let go of this one and give it. But we don't value it at all to begin with. And then, uh, as we move from that, perhaps there are some things that we value We see it having some value and we still hesitate, perhaps not quite so longly, but we deliberate and it becomes not so easy to to let go of it. And then finally, would be a giving of things that we value tremendously, enormously. It might even be our life because we know it happens. And in uh, in this giving, it's totally spontaneous. That is, it's a total spontaneous giving The giving um, is for the value of someone, for the recipient, that is the motivation for the giving is that it's of benefit to someone else, not for us. And it's spontaneous, it comes right from the heart. There's no hesitation, there's no inner bickering or inner bargaining. Okay, now how to get from where we all are right now, again speaking in general, to the place where the capacity to give is so free. Uh, Those of you who are familiar with Vipassana, it won't surprise you that the way we do it is we begin exactly where we are. And so you might just start in some very small way. A few years ago, there was a fellow that uh, I was working with who had a very strong sitting practice. But as we got to know each other better, it turned out that he was plagued by an incredible stinginess and uh, tendency to hoard things. I mean, of a really unusual degree in my experience. We finally, after many hours of discussing this, came to a practice which may seem trivial to perhaps everyone in this room, but for this person it wasn't. And that was he should buy a plant and he should take the responsibility of watering it every day. And this was quite something for him, and that became his practice. And it was amazing what happened, just that simple thing, just to give something to... It wasn't even a person. person was out of the question. (laughs) That was too fanciful. And, you know, he'd heard stories of uh, the Buddha in previous lifetimes on his way to becoming the Buddha, seeing a... uh, a tigress dying and her cubs from starvation and her cubs dying because of no food and the Buddha throwing his body over a cliff so that the tigress could have food, so the tigress could have milk, so that little cubs could live. I mean, that kind of generosity just seemed uh, like on a moonscape, which it probably seems to us too. Then again, you know, it isn't. Every now and then, and often these are by very unassuming people, people that the world never heard of, People do all kinds of interesting things. They jump off bridges and save people and die in the process. Some of the stories in the concentration camps, uh, uh, one uh, Polish priest that some of you may remember, Catholic priest, I can't recall his name, who exchanged his life for someone else who was married and had children. And all kinds of ways in which we do express generosity. We sometimes surprise ourselves. But at any rate, from one limit from where it's kind of pulling teeth to give anything away that we value, to the other where we have things that we value and we use them, but we can we can also let go of them. Now, how to begin is really up to each one of us, but it would it would it could begin by just saying, What do I have to give? Each one of you, you know, please ask yourself in this moment. Uh, Because so many things will do. Whatever it is, whatever you decide, whether it's time or money or food or care, or really anything at all, whatever it is, as you begin to do it, you may find that it isn't this uh, purity that the Buddhist teaching suggests. That is, in giving it, we do want thanks. Thanks. In giving it, perhaps we want a favor returned. Or what we pick is something that is truly worthless to us. Or if we pick something that's even slightly valuable. It may take weeks of deliberation before we finally decide, after being totally circumspect, that I think it's safe to give this to to a given person. And then we do it. And maybe we experience some joy. That's fine. We begin exactly where we are and we accompany it with wisdom so that as we do this, the seeing of how difficult it is, for example, to give something, the seeing perhaps is after we give something, we have regrets. Why did I give that book away? I know it made this person happy, but it could have been on my bookshelf. True, I don't want to read it again. In fact, I never read it. (laughs) But people who come in don't know that and they make all kinds of interesting assumptions about me. So the practice is not to to do an impersonation of being Mother Teresa, which wouldn't work, would it? It would be pretty difficult. But rather to just uh, be yourself and begin to slightly, in ways that are reasonable for you, begin to extend your boundaries in terms of what is possible for you to give. And perhaps begin with something rather modest that is easy to do. And watch what happens. The learning that comes with that is part of our practice. So it's not an occasion to condemn ourselves because we're not Mother Teresa. It's seeing how tightly we get attached, how much we hold on, and then finding out what is that possessiveness about. Why? Why do we hold on so tightly? During the time of the Buddha, there was a, one of, uh, an extremely poor beggar woman. And she heard that the Buddha was in town, she knew that there'd be uh, good eats around, so she got as close to the Buddha as she could, knowing that when the Buddha received, and all the monks received all this food, that obviously, which is the way it happens, uh, this food, some of it would be given to her. And so the food was given out and she was waiting, and the Buddha refused to give her any food, and so she out and out, you know, what's going on here? I mean, I thought you're the Buddha. <laughs> you know, I want my share. That's why I'm hanging out here for my food. And the Buddha said um, he knew about her tendency. And there was this tremendous possessiveness. And he said, I'll give you some food uh, only, I'll offer only if you refuse when I offer you the food. He said, if, when I offer you the food, if you can refuse it, then I'll give it to you she couldn't do it she tried to do it but found that she couldn't do it and in the process she discovered that what she what was the, the hunger really wasn't the food it was a psychological hunger having to do with possessiveness of all kinds and each one of us has to find out what that's all about what is it we're truly hungry for why do we store up so many things books and outfits and pantries full of foods that we don't use and furniture that doesn't get used and sat on and slept on. What What is that all about? Why? Why do we do that? Why is it so hard for us to share? Again, this investigation is not meant in some kind of moralistic or a way of condemning ourselves to ourselves, but rather to learn about how we're imprisoned and using... Uh, This particular this uh, parami, uh, in, in a way, as a device to open us up. Generosity is the is the is sometimes referred to as the gateway or the door to all the other spiritual qualities. It's the first one because as it opens up, all the others open up. It's also the easiest one to understand, and it's in many ways the easiest one to put into practice. Each one of us can begin to do this. Uh, Let me sketch out some of the issues in the giving. The main one have to do with uh, the intention of the giver. It's not really what is being given, although that can become an issue as well, but the purity of heart of the giver, the lack of attachment, the giving without anything uh, having to do any result other than the giving itself. But it also has to do with what's given. If you give something that's inappropriate, then it isn't the, the, the development of this perfection. Children want certain things. People who have problems with alcohol want certain things. All kinds of people want certain things that are not necessarily beneficial for them. And so sometimes what has to be looked at is whether the gift is appropriate. Not only whether the gift is appropriate, whether the time or the place, or the person themselves is the right person to be receiving a gift of this sort. For example, in the uh, commentaries, the, uh, these, uh, the, the uh, generosity or uh, dana is often uh, divided into three categories. The first one has to do with material giving of food, medical supplies, shelter, clothing, etc. Uh, sharing your own good fortune with others on a physical level, quite obvious. The second has to do with the giving of safety, where we provide protection for people who are frightened, uh, people who are uh, physically have been hurt, whatever. Emotional uh, support for people who need it. And the third, which is often called the supreme, the act of supreme generosity, which is the gift of the Dharma itself. The gift of the teaching. Now, this is a very rich one, and I would like to say uh, more about it in a few moments, but just to uh, open it up right now. If you, as, as, as it happens, perhaps some of you in this room have done this, um, if you discovered meditation and became very enthusiastic, did any of you, anyone here become very enthusiastic when you first came upon this or any other meditation practice? No one, huh? Oh, okay. yeah. Did you at that point during the honeymoon phase before you found out about what it really is about, start giving it away to everyone and anyone, your parents, your husbands, wives, lovers, people who could care less about it Okay. okay, so that would be inappropriate. You're giving uh, what, in, the, in terms of let's of the, the Buddhist teaching, of course, is the highest gift you can give anyone, is the gift of wisdom and compassion. Not just uh, uh, helping people to develop it for themselves. Uh, but if you inflict it on somebody, it's no longer generosity. And so uh, what we need to do in uh when giving a gift, what is required is a certain kind of uh, circumspect attitude, beginning to explore, also to try to foresee the consequences of what the gift may bring about. And so sometimes uh, it's best not to give anything, either because it's inappropriate or perhaps you're overextending yourself and then will be resentful later on. It might be best to give nothing at all until you are ready to truly give. And also, it helps if the people want to receive what you're giving them. You know, Otherwise, it's the kind of tyranny of dana, where we do something for our own benefit and uh, don't really have much sensitivity about the person who we've designated to receive our wonderful gratitude. They may not always want what we're offering. And so, sensitivity is needed in every step of the practice. Um, I think what I'd like to do... Uh, now, I hope, having uh, just sketched out the beginnings of it, um, also, I hope, stressed enough, that it's for each one of us to begin where we are and to grow into this at our own pace, I'd like to give a few concrete examples uh, from it, from monastery life in Buddhism to give you a sense of... Uh, this, why dana is such a, a valuable and highly important aspect of the practice. I think I'll start with my own first experience of it. Probably like everyone in this room, uh, my parents also brought me up to be reasonably generous and uh, share what I had, share my good fortune and so forth. And um, As my life unfolded, certainly it was a quality that uh, people would talk about, including myself, when we would meet someone. That person is generous or is not generous. And so that's something that I would say is just a normal... Characteristic that all of us know about, and that's why I say it. not, what I'm saying is really not news. But then, uh, when I began to teach, um, I was given a, a radically different view of it, even though it was the same, but it was different. Uh, the first time I began to teach, I was uh, I was working with San uh, Sanim, who's a many of you know a Korean Zen master, and um, What he encouraged me to do was to give teachings at the Zen Center and elsewhere and to not charge anything, to give the teachings free, freely. Now at the time I had very little money, so that was not uh, an easy thing to do, but he said that didn't matter. Okay, fine, So then, uh, and I would check back with him. So I would teach and there'd be groups who would come together and there was no charge. And typically we'd meet for 10 weeks And within a short period of time, I started to learn something about myself. There were some people who would ask a million questions, who would come up after the class, who would uh, arrange to meet with you about the practice, and then would not leave a penny. I mean, they they would just leave you exhausted. And that, that was it. And there were other people who just very quietly... We just listen to the instructions and practice. You didn't even know if they were there or whether they understood what you were saying or whether they were practicing, and then they would leave and there would be uh, a generous expression of appreciation. I mean, financial money. And my mind, being like I assume most of our minds, which is basically businessman's mind. Now oh, wait a minute. You know, look how hard I work for that person, and you know, not even a penny, and. Sansanim would just roar with laughter. And of course, that's what the training was. The whole point was to learn how to give freely with no strings attached, having nothing to do with whether the people appreciated it, whether the people showed that appreciation with money or applause or I don't know what. That was irrelevant. The point was for me to learn how to give and the giving had to be of that pure nature. Well, needless to say, most of my time was spent Uh, bumping up against myself. Where the whole notion of getting was what uh, predominated rather, rather than giving. And little by little it became quite clear that you could actually practice this. If you were honest with yourself, you could actually practice this. And it wasn't just doing it because some teacher said this is good for you. Because you could begin to see something rather simple and interesting that there was a lot of joy in giving. And also that the, the more you were able to let go, it seemed the happier re- I was, rather than the way in which my uh, unexamined assumption was, which is the more I could hold on to, the, more, the happier I would be. And so little by little, this learning uh, started to become appreciated and trusted. Also, more and more developing the feeling uh, what a great feeling to not have to want things so much. To not have to, even in imagination, just to reflect on it, to not want anything, but to be able to enjoy, to be able to enjoy life, to be able to live life fully, but to not be plagued by endless wanting and calculating. And so, whatever little taste I had of it uh, was enough of an incentive to make this very much a part of my practice. It was deepened dramatically. My appreciation was deepened. I'm not saying my perfection was. Uh, By going to Asia itself, that is, uh, any of you who have practiced in monasteries there, uh, my own first experience was in Japan and Korea. The generosity is extraordinary. There's absolutely no charge for the teaching. And I wound up in Japan and Korea, just about broke. And I lived for an entire year uh, on the kindness of others, totally. I was never asked for one penny in any of the monasteries that I trained at. If I had it, great. And at the end, I was given some money and I had some and so I gave some. But no one ever made that a condition. The teaching was freely given. No one knew or cared. It was very interesting to see that. And also to see the tremendous generosity of the people who supported the entire endeavor of practice because that's what it was about. What we're talking about now is the gift of the Sangha. The Sangha, and how many people are very, very new to this practice who just walked in tonight? Okay, Sangha, uh, to communicate as quickly as I can, is a spiritual community, a community of like-minded people who are practicing together. Uh, This center, for example, does not belong to any person it belongs to the Sangha. It belongs to the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, whatever that is. It's not a who, you know, it's a legal entity. It belongs to us. Okay, and so what I saw was tremendous generosity. Let me give you another example. In Thailand, um, at a monastery uh, called Wat pa Ban Thad, uh, some of you have been reading the books of Mahabua, Ajahn Mahabua. Let me briefly describe how dana works there. You have to understand that generosity in traditional Buddhist culture is a supreme value. It's extraordinarily important and it's a practice in and of itself. Okay, at this monastery, um, the first time I learned about its power was going on alms round where you go uh, through the village and the villagers give you food. The, the food for the monastery totally comes from that. If the villagers don't offer food, the yogis don't eat. It's as simple as that. And as we approached the village, and my memory of it for the first time is still quite vivid uh, as I was off guard and I was uh, deeply moved by what happened. It's an extremely poor part of Thailand. The people are, by our terms, poverty-stricken. There were people who wore the same torn T-shirt every day almost. They lived in what we would call shacks and broken-down huts with animals living inside with them sometimes. Um, and yet, at very early in the morning, you could see them, not everyone. Some of them did it, of course, mechanically, out of convention or out of uh, conformity. But there were enough people who did it with a certain sparkle, a real joy and respect. And what they did was they would come and they would, they would give what little food they had, they would share it with the monks who were coming through their village, put it in their bowl. Now, the practice is for the benefit of the poor people. This is a hard one for us to see. In fact, one of the reasons that I felt a talk like this was needed is a little exchange that happened between, uh, it happened a few times, but one time it was very clear between someone here at the center Uh, About the cooks. Uh, As most of you know, there are people who voluntarily cook for retreats. And, you know, you don't get paid for it. If you like, you can sit the retreat. But there's a number of hours of preparation and work and responsibility and so forth. And uh, this particular person was so, uh, um, a part of our community here, was so uh, appreciative of the cook, saying, you know, it's just incredible how these people come and give up a Saturday or a Sunday or more and, uh, and just cook and then just slip out the door and people don't even know that they cooked and I think we ought to do something for them, the center should, to show them how much we appreciate what they're doing. And so I was stunned and I said, look, you don't understand. Uh, if we did that, we would destroy the whole uh, purpose of it. In other words, we are thanking them for thanking Us. You have to understand that the value of it is that we we provide a field. Uh, They're doing something for themselves. They're purifying their own hearts by by, uh, developing generosity, if it's for a day or for two hours or for 10 seconds. And so our way is sort of, it's all exchange in a certain way. And finally, there is an exchange here too. But what was missed is that if we kept compensating people for doing things out of the generosity of their heart, uh, we would be actually compromising and uh, limiting the spiritual value of this particular practice. And so, but this person was really a shock. Oh, what? You know, they certainly got it. Yeah, we shouldn't do anything. You know, we should let this person have the opportunity to practice generosity because that is very, very helpful for them. Okay, and so you can see that really what's at stake is us. And that's why it's a practice. It said at the time of the Buddha, a young child, and I'm not sure exactly, my memory of this is a little fuzzy, uh, gave the Buddha a little leaf. But because it was such a pure heart, the child gave with such a pure heart, later on, as you know, this seems to happen a lot in the uh, ancient books, uh, needless to say, this child attained total enlightenment. Okay. So it has nothing to do with the amount of what you're giving. I mean, it can have something to do with it, but essentially the main thing is, what's the quality of the giving? And so a, a Dharma center like this, or an IMS, or wherever, part of why it's here is to provide each one of us an opportunity to, to serve, whether it's through helping out on Wednesday evening or whether it's cooking at a retreat or in whatever way you can. It can be financial, of course, because uh, how else will the center continue if it isn't? But that isn't the only way. Some people don't have very much money. That doesn't mean that they can't practice uh, dana parami because there's something to be given. For example, just to come here and sit. Let's say you come to a morning sitting or an evening sitting that is giving as well. Because when you come, you're strengthening everyone else's practice, just seeing you here. Perhaps you know it. If you were to walk into the hall and be alone, now, some people really appreciate having an empty hall, at least sometimes. But by and large, you like having some company. And so the person who has come has strengthened your practice. Thank you very much. Sometimes when you see the bowing, that's what that is. There's bowing to the Buddha, but there's also bowing that we do to each other because by coming, each one of us is supporting, we're supporting one another. And so whether you know it or not, there's some contribution just that if you keep practicing, if you just pay your dues, you're keeping a situation alive where everyone can come and practice. Okay, to get back to Wat Pa Ban because I'd like you to see that there are other ways of of living. Not that our way is necessarily inferior, this is just one way. Uh, I'm not saying that the people in Thailand or these big-hearted, enormous, wonderful, generous souls and all that we are just selfish, out for a buck. I, I don't, that's not true. Anyone who's been there and who's open about this country knows that's not true. There are plenty of kind and generous people here as well. Um, Okay, so that what is gathered is all this is food and let's say medical supplies and toilet paper and whatever uh, robes from these poor people. And it's brought to the monastery and the people who are practicing the monastery eat because those poor people shared from what they cooked. Now, it's a very subtle little point. Any extra food, when the monks finish eating and all the lay people who join them finish eating, if there's anything extra, it took me a while to see this, it's immediately recycled back into the town, into this uh, village, for the very, very poor people. So that everyone gets the joy of giving and the feeling of opening up and the the warm-heartedness of giving. But no one goes hungry, because if there's too much food, the monks immediately, nothing gets spoiled is wasted. Not a grain of rice is wasted. It's a, These young uh, temple boys run it right back into town so that then those people who are really poor and everyone knows who they are, who they are get the food. Same with medical supplies. In addition, uh, the animals, uh, uh, Dana is practiced in regard to the animals. When I first came to this monastery, I was it was staggering to see how many squirrels there were. I'd never seen so many squirrels in all my life. Uh, if some of you think that a forest monastery is just totally quiet and serene you'd be in for a big surprise between the wild chickens, the squirrels and the creatures of names of which I don't have uh, it's actually quite deafening it's a very noisy it's much noisier than Broadway. Of course they're natural sounds organic yeah okay. at any rate uh, in this particular monastery uh, uh, Ajahn Mahabur was actually was born in this village. He himself came out of the same very poor, uh, same poor background and was a, uh, what, as it's described, a dirt poor farmer. And in order to survive, they all mainly uh, farmed rice, uh, his family would kill squirrels and he, of course, killed many squirrels so that they would have enough to eat. Later on, when he became a monk, he felt tremendous remorse for having killed all these squirrels. And so um, what he did was Uh, he created a squirrel sanctuary. The monastery is a squirrel sanctuary. There's actually a wall around the monastery. And uh, I asked what that was about. And he said, well, at first they didn't have a wall. They just wanted to protect the squirrels. But villagers would come right into the monastery grounds. It's a hundred, it's very large. uh, And kill squirrels. So they had to put up a wall. And so over a period of about 30 years or more, What has happened is that there's a wall and squirrels are safe and protected. Not only that, some of the food is set aside for the squirrels and the dogs. That's another thing, the dogs are cared for. Often, sometimes you'll see many dogs have a rough time in Thailand. They're really just skin and bones. The dogs here are fed. So the food comes in, the monks are fed, the squirrels are fed, whoever lay people are there are fed, the dogs are fed. And whatever is extra is given back out. Um, that includes, well, really anything. Okay, so you, you see, it's a whole way of life. Now, so that you understand some of the monks, uh, one will be coming here soon. The Buddha created a rather intricate system where the monks are dependent on lay people to survive. They have to be. They are not allowed to do certain things. So unless the lay people give them food, uh, they are helpless. And so the lay people give food, the monks in return, in a sense, their existence, means that they're, they're, they are spiritual friends because they provide the opportunity for the lay people to grow inwardly by being generous, even though they may not have a lot. Now, from our mind, I'm sure any of you, are, you can find all kinds of, sure, the monks that want to set up, they brainwash <laughs> brainwash these poor people. You know, you can have a beautiful Marxist interpretation of all this. And I'm not saying it isn't valid sometimes. No doubt it is. But that's not the intent. Okay, so generosity um, is an interesting quality. Uh, When you go to a good monastery and they're harder and harder to find, part of the training has to do with, uh, the best term I can come up with is infinite respect. That is, if the gift, whatever it is you're giving is not accompanied by respect, it's also not a perfection. It's not dana parami. For example, if you should uh, give some street uh, homeless person or a a person who's uh, in trouble on the streets Money and then also give them some kind of stern lecture, or inside feel very judgmental. Why don't they go out and earn a living the way I do? Uh, you've just uh, taken back what you've given. And so, is that whether the ingredients are sparse—that is, all you have are leftovers—or whether you have an enormous, rich abundance of ingredients whether the, uh, who you're feeding are just the same old tired-looking monks who are there and nuns day after day or whether there's some very important people, famous meditation masters visiting, you're supposed to give the, the same care and attention to what you're doing so, so that it has no difference to the rank of who it is you're giving something to. That is, the uh, attention and the care is equal for whoever it is. And as you try to do that, you see that you really do have preferences. That the generosity can be very stylized, going along lines that are, uh, that have to be looked at. Okay, what I'd like to do now is to, uh, leave this by taking us one step further in terms of our ordinary understanding of generosity, to give you a somewhat deeper meaning of it. So far, I'm assuming that you all know what I'm talking about. It's if you have extra material goods and you share it, and you share it with somebody who needs these material goods, this assistance, whether it's money or food or or medicine, it's obviously a good thing. No doubt everyone in this room has done that sometime in your life. If you provide safety and protection for somebody who's frightened, you also know that. As we go into the sharing of, of wisdom, that is, dana parami, that is, the, the generosity is the generosity of, of sharing the Dharma, it becomes a little bit more subtle. For example, the, a very, very high form of generosity here is sharing the teaching. But this is not limited to formal teaching, it's not, let's say, simply doing what I'm doing right now. Everyone in this room, any time you're able to to convey to somebody, to, in a sense, help re-educate them, help move them in a direction that moves towards wisdom and towards compassion, you have taught taught them Dharma. And in the process, you have developed that generosity. If you've taken the trouble, if you see somebody heading in a destructive direction, it could be a very simple thing. And you, in your own way, Skillfully guide them and help them, whether it's a child or a friend, and in some way contribute to their re-education, so that how they live from that day on is more beneficial for them and for others who come in contact with them. Then you are practicing uh, dana parami in terms of the Dharma itself. You know, that itself takes subtlety and understanding, doing it when it's appropriate and so forth. And again, it's relative to what we, to our own understanding, the depth of our own own understanding. The whole point, though, in the sharing of Dharma is for it to become, as the training that I was given by Sansanim, is for it to become totally free, for our hearts to open up and for the Dharma to be shared um, without any restriction whatsoever. Now, What is it that we're sharing? Or what is it that we're really giving away? Well, I'm giving away the teaching. I'm giving away a bed. I'm giving away uh, some money. It turns out that the most important thing that you're giving away is our biggest obstacle. You're giving away your ego. And so the, the biggest sacrifice of all, the hardest thing for any of us to give, and what takes the greatest generosity, is to give up us. Now here I'm not talking about the body where you, where you throw yourself over a cliff for a uh, tiger to eat you. Uh, what I'm talking about is this attachment that we have to I and mind. All the self-images that the mind creates and which command us and which we live in the service of. And so in small ways, every time we practice genuine generosity, what we're doing is chipping away we're chipping away at that very powerfully ingrained tendency that we all have to cherish the self over and above anything else. And so finally, the practice of dana becomes a transcendent practice. Because, and it's, it's even done alone. If in your sitting meditation, something comes up, which in quotes is you, and you're able to see it for what it is and let it go. That's an act of great generosity. As you know, it's not easy to do. What we hoard most of all is I and mine. Even if it's suffering, this is my suffering. No one's going to tell me or show me a way to let go of it. I want to hold on to it for a little bit longer. Or any of the other subtle uh, aspects of mind that keep us chained and imprisoned. And so the practice on an outer level, giving to persons, to animals the whole groups, whatever it is, is essentially a way of working on our on its inward, its inner development, as always. So that, in the end, there may be a donation, but there's no donor. There is giving may be happening, but who's doing the giving? Because when there's really clear seeing, there's just a full giving, it's unattached, There's no concept attached to it. There's no ideal. There's not even any notion of virtue. Like, oh, I'm being such a good person by giving this to that person. That, of course, as soon as you do that, you just flattened it out. And so there's what is being let go there is the sense of appropriating the gift, the ego appropriating the gift, and in the process vitiating it, tarnishing it. In the end, it turns out there's really no gift. Now I'm speaking from a certain point of view because many of you know, in the teachings we talk about the self as lacking any inherent existence. It's empty of true self. It's empty of true existence. It conventionally exists, relatively, but as we look closer, there's not anything that can be found that truly exists. But this uh, emptiness, as it's called in, in Buddhist teaching, is also true of phenomena. Nothing out in that world exists objectively or truly either. This center exists conventionally, tentatively, but it doesn't have inherent existence. It once was a family's home and then it was a rooming house and now it's CIMC. Who knows what's next? So it has some existence and the recipient in the same way. And so there's... uh, A freedom, which becomes, that is, uh, every time you give, what you give away is a piece of yourself. And uh, it turns out to be the most beneficial thing we can do for ourselves. Okay, I think I'd like to end on that point and hear what you have to say. Anything that's on your mind. Any comments or questions, if we can clarify this, if it's confusing?
1: Yes.
2: Um, we're, uh, we're for a, a, a in the form of, um, so you should, to give more of to the world and the in a way. Not being that
0: Can you tell me specifically what you have in mind? If you can, I'll try and answer in general, but it's always best <laughs> if it's concrete. Well, I, um... See, it's about you. This is this practice is about you. Otherwise, this is not Sunday school. You know, we're saying be more generous to your brothers and sisters. It's for you to see the value of it and to take it on as a practice. So, h- how does it affect you in terms of livelihood? Well, I sweat um, I
2: actually swear, right? Mm-hmm. mm
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a tricky one. Um, some of you know that the Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva is in a sense a Buddha in training, and many of you are that, whether you know it or not, and some of you perhaps even know it. There is the Bodhisattva has said that when this really takes off let's say in terms of this generosity, the bodhisattva is intoxicated with compassion. Now here's an interesting twist. At a certain point, you begin to leave uh, the holding on to things behind and you start to really experience the joy of giving. There's no question that it can be a delight and a great joy to just give. Very freeing and very liberating so that you give and then you feel happy and then you give a little bit more and you feel a little happier but that's not the most mature stage on the practice because finally what it turns out is that the most mature position is when the person is already on fire with joy and the giving comes anyway you see it's the giving is uh, it's the other way around you're now full of joy and you give the giving is a manifestation or an expression of the joy rather than producing it. Do you you follow the distinction? Okay, It's a subtle one, but as you can see, as we grow, the stakes become much more, it becomes very much more fine. Okay, Now, why am I saying this? When I was in Korea, a very famous Korean psychiatrist who had heard that I was uh, uh, involved in those things before I started doing this, arranged to meet with me, and he wrote a long paper, which he wanted to be a book, where he was talking about the psychiatrist as bodhisattva, and he listed what the, uh, all the qualifications of a bodhisattva, which have to do with a lot of it, with generosity, compassion, and serving, just what you're talking about. And then he listed some of the things psychiatrists do. And he said, you see, it's really the same thing. But I said, well, what's your salary? Mm-hmm. You know, and he said, I forgot what it was. It was some, by Korean standards, some, you know, very large amount. And Not that that in itself uh, uh, disqualifies him, but then I asked him some other questions. Uh do you ever see patients when they don't have money or do you this and the point is that it gets more complicated. It's not that it's irrelevant, but it gets more complicated when you get paid for doing good. You can be a totally pure bodhisattva and be making a hundred thousand dollars. You would have to be very, very pure. Let me give you a sense. Yeah. Let me give you a little bit of a sense of this. I only have I only have a tongue a tongue taste of this. I was still teaching at the university. Uh, uh, I had been involved with in, with these things for quite a few years, and I and it was sort of the tail end, the last year or two that I was teaching, where only my body was there. I mean, I was not there for the same reasons that everyone else was there, although I, it looked like I was. But I did get a paycheck like everyone else but there was a certain liberating day when I realized that I didn't work for Brandeis University, that my boss was not the president. It wasn't in any arrogant way. I realized that I had to take my signals, my clues, my guidance from a source that was deeper than them at whatever cost. Now, I still got a nice paycheck at the end of the month. So it's really, I would, in answer to your question, Childcare is it, is that what you're doing now? Yeah. I think it has to do with um, the nature of uh, how you relate to what's happening to you. The fact that you're getting paid, I don't think disqualifies you. Not at all, because we all are. You need to live. But you have to see if the getting paid is determining a lot of what you're doing. What would you... Are there ways in which you're kind to certain children and not others? Or ways in which perhaps... You stay a little later, even though, you know, by job description, you should, I can go home now, you know, it's five o'clock, the whistle is blown. I don't really know the issues. But if your heart's in the right place, then I think that you can, yes. It's just more difficult if you're getting well paid to be kind. You know what I mean? (laughs) Now, this is important for us because most of us have jobs. And I would say... Uh, a very important challenge would be to turn your job into right livelihood if you want it to aid your practice so that it contributes to the momentum of practice. Your job, it would be wonderful if your job is actually going in the same direction as our meditation practice. Now, that doesn't... And most jobs can be um, rehabilitated from inside. They don't have to be sort of obvious jobs like doctor or child care. It could be a waiter, a waitress, taxicab driver. It's the way in which you carry it out. You can carry it out in such a way that there's the development of compassion and generosity. It can be very unassuming. So it's important that we learn how to do this since we all do have jobs that pay money, or at least most of us. Yeah? yeah I'm, I'm a little confused about, you said um, that you can't have true giving for a bad cause. or something like that. True giving for a bad cause? Yeah. Uh, Or do you think he can? Because I was thinking of like uh, St. Francis supposedly went and supported the Christian crusades. is that
2: not true service or true giving? Even though it
0: seems like a bad move. See, see, within that system no doubt it seemed fine. I I really don't want to... But uh, let's bring it something that... I mean, that's a good question. That's more within our... um, Let's say somebody who's an alcoholic in the street... Uh, wants a drink, and if you say, oh, sure, you know, and you give him money for a drink, it isn't necessarily, uh, it isn't necessarily dana, paramita. It has to do with really understanding who this person is and what the effect, it's the outcome of it. You know, I, I can't pass judgment on St. Francis. I personally, being Jewish, I'm not too enthusiastic about holy wars. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> uh, but, um, but, but so, yeah. do you think
2: my point? Is that yeah. He could be totally, yeah. totally pure servant yeah. for a cause that ultimately is evil.
0: Yeah. Now, some of that might have to do with what St. Francis believed. Then it gets to really, finally, it's going to be, each person is going to have to take responsibility for their own life. Because you could say, well, he didn't know what they would do and, you know, it would be like the Nazis and so forth. Or, well, within the, the, the limitations of this world view, what they were doing was serving God and he honestly felt that. So, I mean, there's obviously room for difference of opinion. From a Buddhist point of view, if what you're doing is killing and you're saying that that's in the service, by and large, you're saying that's in the service of something spiritual religious, it won't hold water. Uh, they, they wouldn't go along with that. It's not saying there are never exceptions. Because I asked the same Zen master, Sansanim, if he had a chance to assassinate Adolf Hitler during World War II. Uh, this is a slightly different point, but, you know, it's similar. Uh, would he do it? And he paused for a long time. And then in his broken English, he said, sometimes killing is good. You know, okay, now, but then he also said, but to do it, because by killing, let's say one person, you may save millions of other people. But he said also, the person who would do that would have to be prepared to pay for that with their own karma. I was like, I'm killing this person called Otto Hitler and that may save millions of people's lives but I also know that I have to account for that so it's not sentimental from a Buddhist point of view uh, re- things called religious which have to do with killing people who don't share that religious belief makes no sense yeah.
2: you
0: know killing for God I mean it just uh, it isn't it, it would uh, it would be for example um This has come up with the Tibetans and and terrorism. People have suggested, why don't the Tibetans use some of the forms of terrorism, which have, let's say, given some people who in some ways are helpless, relatively helpless, more power in the Middle East. And the Dalai Lama and others have said, "Uh, we can't do that. That would be so beneath the dignity of a human being. In other words, to kill, uh, kill, uh, let's say, Harmless people, or to blow up airplanes, it's beyond our grasp. It would be the, it's, there's no way to reconcile that with Buddhist practice. I mean, we have to do guerrilla warfare, but in a sense it's like honest killing. You know, it's sort of like, I'm a soldier, I'm hiding out, I'm trying to kill you, you're trying to kill me. But the notion of taking people hostage, uh, uh, the Dalai Lama couldn't, couldn't deal with it. You know, it was sort of mind-boggling to him. It, it lacked, it lacked total dignity. Yeah.
2: Um, As I was hearing you speak, I'm finding it hard to phrase this question, but um, I was thinking of um, Donna and the different relationships that that a person has in in their life. Mm -hmm. And um, it seems to me that it's kind of a contradiction that the closer, as I think about it, the closer a relationship is to you, the harder it would be to practice Donna in a way that you would not expect anything in return. Um, if I start to think yes. about um, giving to say a significant other or or um, a family member yeah. the expectations seem to increase Yes. and I would expect to have something in return. And, um,
0: what if you could love your parents period? <laughs> could just just reflect on that for a moment. You just You just serve them whatever way you can period. Yeah, but do you remember that time in the playground when they I, they they went for an ice cream cone and left me unattended for two hours? I was just a child. Forget it. You know, they brought you into the world and you just love them. You're not getting anything back, but you come home and they still nag you. <laughs> Doing this meditation, it's going nowhere.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, the issue uh, actually it gets at what is you know if you hear all the romantic love songs, you know, love, you know, everyone's loving everyone, right? Well, the word has obviously uh, been disfranchised. It means nothing, because, or it means everything. So we have to find out what it means in a particular instance. Uh, but one way of looking at it is that you're getting at a true definition of love. The love is given with no conditions. Whether it's to a significant other or whatever, your uh, husband, wife, lover—it doesn't matter. Uh, it's the same issue. Can you? Uh, otherwise, it's a kind of a business transaction. Sort of like, I'll love you, but I want you to gra- make sure that my gratification is taken care of. And the first day you miss, you've had it. You miss giving me a stroke when I really need it. And I come home from the office sad, and you don't say, oh, what happened? Then you've had it. Then I'm going to sulk even more. So what if you could, the, the love could be... Cause then, it's really, then you're really loving the other person. Otherwise, it's... Uh, It's got something else in it. Do you you see the difference? I think it can be developed. I think it can be developed. uh, I've done a lot of that with my own parents and there's no question it can be developed. I'm not saying I've perfected it. But my father and I are really comfortable with each other finally. Okay, now some of that is that I stopped having prerequisites, having, you know, for my father having to be a certain way so that I could fully respond. He doesn't have to do anything at all anymore. But, you know, it took years. So, yes, is, does that come as a shock to you or a surprise? Or does it just seem difficult? It, um,
2: it was just, it seems, um, it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem difficult. As difficult as parents.
0: Um, okay, pick, as, as a, as okay, let's pick, let's pay. you mean intimate relationship? Of course, of course. Okay, let, let let's um, let's look at that. This is one, of course, that's difficult, probably for everyone in this room, or we all have been, have been, are in, will be in situations where we face what you're talking about. And this is not meant to be some kind of Hollywood ending where couples meet and they hear about a talk on Donna Paramita and they just. You know, ride off into the sunset. We want, you know, if we're going to be in a relationship, we want something out of it. Right. What are we going to get out of it? Some spiritual teachings have to do with that is if you want to make your relationship, this is I think it applies to anything, but let's say two people come together. If they both would like to make it a spiritual practice, the way to do that is that let's say it's you and I. That my concern is to totally love you and care about you. I'm not concerned about myself. And your concern is to totally love me and care about me. Now, then we both get taken care of. See, but it's not, I'm going to do this in order to do that to me. And so how for that to become spontaneous? It's not easy. And so now to come to, let's say, real people. Well, let's say situations which are more, which are more common. That is probably rare. That takes two highly developed developed spiritual beings. You know, where the relationship itself is in a deeper context. Where where we understand that there's something even deeper than our relationship. It could be a husband and a wife totally devoted to each other. There's an understanding that it's that itself is an expression of something even deeper than it, whether you want to call that God or or Dharma or whatever. But now let's say we start with people just like ourselves, ordinary folks, full of possessiveness, jealous, a close watch on whether we're getting our money's worth. Okay, now what we can do is start where we are. And I think you'll find that you can loosen this strangle. In other words, if you enjoy being possessive, full speed ahead. You know, but I think if you look closely at what it feels like to be possessive, it's torture And so if you can begin to learn about how to, let's say, or let's just take, since tonight we're talking about Donna, if you can learn how to do something kind for the other person, and to begin with, you'll see that there's always a provision in the contract, you know, like, oh, you know, here's this, and then, you know, but I hope that you'll take care of the kid tomorrow, right? You know, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But as you begin to see how you have, that there's always some uh, fine print in your giving, you might be able to get to even an instance of genuine giving. Uh, but certainly it's something that we can develop a little bit of. We can become less possessive. We can uh, truly, I think when you're in real love, that's what happens. You really can't separate and you care about the other person. And sometimes they aren't kind to you or they don't do what you want. And it does not you don't stop loving them because of it. Now, do, do you see what I'm getting at? Now, I'm not talking about perfection in that Uh, Rock Hudson and Dar's Day are at the end of it. I don't know who the current models would be. What I'm talking about is that uh, even introducing a little bit of the spirit of generosity into the relationship, which is to say the spirit of non-attachment, can help but make more space for the relationship and give it more of a chance of being fulfilling. You know, at this... Yes, please. Well, um, it depends uh, uh, how you give it. That is, um, what is it that you would be giving? For example, if you're giving the other person, if the gift that you're giving the other person is you're re-educating them, in other words, you're giving them wisdom, you're you're showing them, mostly what happens is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? So there's this, reactive. There's this cycle. I hit you. I take out your eye. So you take out my eye, right? You knock out my teeth. I knock out your teeth. And it keeps going like that. And we're all blind and toothless walking around wondering why the planet is this way. Why isn't it a so serene place? You know? It's not a mystery in a sense. Okay. Now, supposing someone does something to you, and especially if it's sincere on your part, and what you do is that you meet them with love or you don't, you break the circuit. That's that's a very high spiritual practice. It's in all the great religions. If you're able to genuinely accomplish that, you've. Uh, it doesn't follow that they necessarily will stop doing, but you've made a space in breaking the circuit for them to possibly learn something new. Our whole practice is about. It's a massive re-education of our character. Whatever your character is now, it's a. Uh, if you want to go all the way with this, it's a radical, uh, comprehensive approach to the way we live and who we are. It's not just meditation. That was a hippie mis- mis- uh Myself being in that generation of w- uh, those who went to Asia and brought the teaching back, we fell in love with meditation. It was the closest thing to drugs, you know. So it was recognizable. And what we left behind were things like dana, like personal integrity, like a vast and profound teaching. And now what we're trying to do is to bring the whole teaching in, not just, it's not just sitting, it really isn't. And so let's say a practice like that, let's say nonviolent practice could be seen as dhana in the sense that what you're doing is giving, teaching this person, you're giving them some, some wisdom firsthand, you're using your own body as the teaching. I would say it's very high teaching. Of course, that's what Gandhi did. But if it's not internal, okay, to begin with, it may not be internal. It may be something you just do, you, you make yourself do. But the whole point is for more for it to become more and more authentic. Yes, I, I think I could be seen that way. Please. I'll tell you, if I could answer why I only have one mouth instead of two because I really like to eat and talk I like to do both <laughs> and I like to do it at the same time but for some reason I find myself only having one mouth and two arms I could use a couple more and two ears and so forth that is uh, the design of the universe is beyond my understanding. And what we find, I mean, I can, you know, each religion has a map or a whole story. Uh, you know, you could say that we, we find ourselves having this, that that I trust. And that the whole point is, in a sense, it makes the, the it's the meaning of life. The meaning of life, in a, in a very profound sense, is to free ourselves from the limitations that our own mind puts on us. In other words, why have we made planet Earth a nightmare instead of paradise? Okay, so the, the Buddhist answer has to do with karma. There are some people who are born just about free to begin with. So, you know, uh, it has to do with many lifetimes. Is this something that uh, you can relate to? N- not particularly. Okay, hey, so then stick with what's at hand that you can trust, which is that we find, starting today, tonight, when you leave here, become very, very sensitive about that whole dimension of uh, letting go and holding on to. Seeing when we grasp on to things, cling to them, see what that feels like. See what it feels like when we allow things to flow. And because if it isn't a better feeling, then why trade one for the other? One uh, landmark in work on Donna can be when you realize that this so is... I not I believe it's a better feeling, but yeah. I wonder, if it is such a better feeling, why don't we as children just you know,
2: it naturally flow this way? And
0: but you know, uh, early on, some children are like that. And then they, they, they get re-educated. Very, very much so. But see, now, to me... Uh, since I can't answer, really answer your question in any convincing way, I, mean, I could give you the whole theory of karma and rebirth, and I don't think that would be so helpful, and we don't have time for it. But, but what you could do is look at it uh, in the following way. I think you already know this. Your question suggests you might already know this. For me, a turning point was when I saw that the object that I felt stingy about wasn't didn't have really very much... In a sense, it has no intrinsic joy in it, or very little. And it was far inferior to the state of mind that I had when I gave the object away. It's hard. It takes a while to make that connection. It's a subtle one. That is, one of the reasons we don't want to give the object away is because we feel that that's, we're, we're going to be the worst for it. Okay. Now, what we don't fully trust is what would be, what could be most wonderful would be to not need any objects Okay, now we're getting at the crux of the whole spiritual path, because it turns out that the deeper we go inside, the more generous we can be, because we're not as thing-bound. We're not as identified with objects, deeply feeling that this is the way in which we will get fulfilled. My books, my clothes, my house, my car, my, my. We built up an we build an identity out of these pieces, these equip pieces of equipment. And then our whole life is spent uh, protecting and nourishing that identity, those images. Now, as the practice, it's kind of circular. As generosity and letting go develops, that takes you deeper inside. As you go more deeply inside, you feel less impoverished so that you can give objects away because you know that you feel good anyway. Okay, take my best suit. It's all right, I, I, I really like it, but I know I'll be okay if you have it. And so the more you give, the deeper you can go inside. The deeper you can go inside, the more you can give because uh, the, n- none of very few, I don't know, maybe none of these objects have any intrinsic meaning. It's what we impute to them. And that we, what we begin to see is that the state of consciousness, if we want happiness, then let's really look and through investigation we may see That letting go brings actual happiness. Actual, actual, not theoretical. And that the holding on uh, very often doesn't or brings happiness that's short-lived. And we can bring up our children as best we can, if you feel this value is a good one, and probably you all do, to to bring some more generosity and warmth into the world. But why we're all as screwed up as we are beats me. And we have to work so hard to just become ordinary. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. You had a question? Didn't you have no? Yes.
2: I do have a question, I just I have more and more frequently been noticing me why I do something that I do even if it's you when know, I'm driving a car, letting someone in front of me and they don't say thank you the mm-hmm. way, you know. Noticing that that's what I expected from them. Mm -hmm. And even things like smiling or saying, you know, that someone expecting a smile in return. And noticing, I mean, you're still expecting something in return, but if you notice it, if you can catch it yourself, I mean, does that sort of help?
0: Yes, exactly. Now you're bringing wisdom, vipassana, into it see we can't let's say you all heard this talk and it's very convincing okay yes we're all going to practice dana paramita from the moment we wake up until we go to sleep but we won't be able to because what happens is these old impulses reinstate themselves and color everything so it's not that we have to be perfect what we can do though is we can begin to learn from our actual reactions and that's why the force of generosity is called the purification of mind any moment that you practice this, you're, you're reconditioning your mind in a beneficial way. When you practice greed, then you're making that stronger. Hoarding, you're strengthening that. When um, Just even a moment, even a thought about it. For example, just to reflect, and this is a reflection in Buddhist practice. Uh, people will sometimes go on retreats and uh, sp- uh, take some time, uh, some Tibetan practices are like this, where you reflect on uh, past occasions when you were generous. It's not to kind of pat yourself on the back and you know, build up your ego. It's just to acknowledge how joyful it was to be generous. You know, how you enjoyed, your friends came over and you had this meal in the refrigerator, but okay, let's share it and you had a great time. And so you reflect on past moments when you were generous and you allow yourself to re-experience the generosity. And the deeper your samadhi or concentration, you mix your samadhi in with that in with that recollection. What you do is, in those mind moments, you're now giving yourself the inner feeling of the joy of generosity, which then makes it easier for actual generosity in the now to be forthcoming. So what you're doing is a good practice. Sure. Please.
1: Recently, I've been challenged by instances being able to receive as well as being able to give. Mm-hmm. That's another issue in itself, I think,
0: uh, It's the same thing. Uh, for, if I hear you correctly or understand you, for some people, receiving is giving. Yes. That is, if you don't allow... You know the... Uh, I don't know if it'll be funny now, but you know who the Lone Ranger is? Okay, it's not important. I'll, I'll explain who he was my He was my childhood hero, so... L- Lone Ranger, when I was growing up there was a, a man he had a white horse and he wore a mask and a, he had a cowboy outfit and he had an assistant who was an Indian and it's the, what? It's a man on TV <laughs> It was a man on
2: TV. This is radio, honey <laughs> <laughs>
0: No, okay. okay So this man was the Lone Ranger Okay and the Lone Ranger would constantly be do- doing good things, you know. He would just save this person and donate this, and you know, it was just. But when people wanted to thank him, he would always ride off, you know. And they would say, "Who was that? Where? Where is it? He's gone," you know. So no one. Could, and then finally, one of the episodes I remember, it just struck me as hilarious, where people got really furious with him, you know, just sort of like. You're always riding off. You never let us thank you. We can't, you know. Later on, Lenny Bruce, who was a comedian, made made an extended extended very good thing out of that. And so, in some way, he's not allowing the people who he's helped to express their appreciation. And this is a common thing, let's say, in relationship, where sometimes the way to give someone something is to allow, to receive. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. That's why it's, finally, it's a subjective thing. It has to do with the inner meaning for you. It's not. Uh, it's not out there. It's what. So,
1: there's another aspect to it. Uh, different people give you things. Mm-hmm. things. talking about material objects. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes you sense the intention that they give. They give. Exactly. They might be doubting. They might be. they really from the They want to give. Mm-hmm. But also there is this embedded uh, thing about processing things. And you are actually giving it away. You're actually what? You actually giving it away. So they are conscious of that too. Mm-hmm. And there is always, always fear of, uh, am I going to give something back? Maybe they're not even aware of it, but uh, giving is so powerful that they give it. Mm-hmm. And somehow I tend to understand these things. And then you have to deal with the person's psychology.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Cushion them or something. You
0: know. so well, now what is it?
1: The, the energy is. What is
0: it you're cushioning them? The
1: giving is down from the heart. Mm-hmm.
0: That mm-hmm.
1: But there is a subconscious period, maybe it lasts for two seconds or three
0: seconds. On whose part? The donor or the recipient? Both, I guess. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're not perfect yet. And so whatever it is, it's all right. It's moving in the right direction. This seems to be an evening for Sansanim stories. Uh, A number of us started a a center in New York City. And at at the opening of it, many Korean people came, really a lot. And they brought flowers for the altar, which is a, a custom in Buddhist for Buddhist temples to signify impermanence. Flowers wilt and die. They're beautiful you appreciate them and then they die. It's a teaching. And uh, these Korean people brought plastic flowers on the altar. (laughs) And there were a number of us. uh, I remember one person in particular who had a very strong sense of aesthetics. He was a poet. He's now a very famous poet. And uh, when no one was looking, we'd whisk them away and put them, hide them under the clothes and then these Korean women would find them and just put them back out again <laughs> or there would be more brought. You know. And we did it a few times and finally we went to Sansanin. We said, Sansanin, we have this beautiful new temple and uh, they keep putting all these plastic flowers you know. and we were complaining. And he says, these women have very pure hearts. He said, your mind is made of plastic. <laughs> Um, Many of the monks, part of their job is, especially the very mature ones, um, part of their job is to to provide people with an object who receives things, but they don't need anything. For example, um, it's quite common. Uh, I'm just thinking about, our time is running out. Ajahn Chah, who some of you have read, you've read his book. So there was an American monk who had an interest in art and he saw all these wonderful works of art being donated to Ajahn Chah and being brought to his little meditation hut. And at one point it became his turn to clean up Ajahn Chah's hut and he was very excited because he wanted to see all this great art. He came into the hut, it was totally empty. All that was there was a cot and uh, mosquito netting. And totally empty. The same with Mahabu. Is, Mahabu is one of my teachers. Um, he's given things. It's almost it's, a, it's like a department store. After some of the piles of you name it. And you go into his kuti. Or his, his little house. And all I saw was a jar of medicine. And a, and a mat and a cot. And mosquito netting. So apparently what's happening is. People are giving him. Thank you very much. They give it to some, someone else. People give them money, thank you very much. So they're a medium, a means for the person to practice on, to develop generosity. But, what, but they don't need it, and it would be stupid for them to just pile it up when they don't use it. So they then just recycle it, just as with the extra food. Okay, maybe one last one, and then call it an evening, if there is anything on anyone's mind. Let me. Not so much question.
1: It's a question. Sure.
2: And the practice always seems to bring you back to this exclusive place. Particularly, to not try and act in a way that will change the
0: cover what I'm saying. That will require you more time. Okay, do it. Just a final uh, few words about this center and Donna. the center totally exists because of Donna. This, by the way, is not a pitch for collection or anything. Yeah. So, it, as I was talking, it reminded me of the old the synagogue days, where at the end suddenly we get quiet, and then the rabbi would talk about what was needed, and you know all the donations and so forth. It, I, I don't think that's what I'm doing. I mean, maybe, <laughs> I, maybe unconsciously I am. I hope not. Um, we've wrestled with this. Um, Uh, The center itself is supported by donations, some large, some very small, membership, etc. Most of us who are involved with the center, let's say in the board and people who are teaching here, uh, we would love to be able to just give the teachings away free, you know, just for you all to just come here whenever you'd like and to leave whenever you'd like and to be no charge for any classes, talks, retreats, what have you. Um, and just leave it up to you. But the problem is, it's a very practical one: is that we have to pay our bills on a monthly basis. And in the West, you don't have that notion. In fact, why should you? The practice is too new here. You don't. You don't. It hasn't been here long enough for you have to derive the fruit and such a, with such depth that you, out of your own spontaneity, want to support the place. I mean, we don't want to have to be saying well, you know, if you don't give us money, uh, we can't pay the rent or whatever it is, or we can't pay our electric bill, which would be more like it. Um, And so since most of us are very new to Dharma, and we haven't fully uh, had time to experience what it is, the preciousness of what it is that we're we're doing here, uh, we can't wait for you to kind of develop that. And so we have another option which is also used in Asia, which is, to me, a perfectly wholesome one, and that is sharing the expenses. And that's uh, IMS, those of you who know IMS is a mixture. That is, you pay a certain fee, which covers the running of IMS, but then whatever you give to teachers is up to you. Um, here, we try to keep the prices as low as we can within the limits of us surviving as an organization, as an, you know, with costs. And I, I hope you see it that way. Also no one has, to my knowledge, has ever been turned away because of money, either to be a member or to do a retreat. So we try to, in our own way, balance that by, we need a certain standard amount of money on a monthly basis so that the center can uh, operate smoothly. Um, And then again, we don't uh, want to, we're not uh, here to make this uh, an enormous profit-making venture. And so we try to stay pretty close to that. But the spirit is similar, and it's a. Ch- uh, and we ourselves uh, try to. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharma slash donate.